Good evening. And welcome to the first lecture of week three of Herbal School Summer Session 1999. Our speakers this week include also uh, William Barlow, who is in residence this week, co-teaching the book writing course at Rare Book School during the 1999 Saul Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. That will also be in this room called Adventures in Book Collecting. On Thursday, I will be giving uh, a twice told tale in the Rotunda, presenting meditations on the past 10 years or so of the history of the Book Arts Press and of their book school with some comments about its future. Those who have been before need not come again this year. There are actually, <laughs> there are actually several new paragraphs from over last year. Uh, some I think will interest you. That's Thursday in the Rotunda. Let's also remember that there's a fascinating exhibition, if we do say so, in the Rotunda on Thomas Jefferson Ephemera, run by Robert Elliott Talley, the class of 99, just graduated. It's a major show. It's extremely unusual in this country for other graduates to do that book exhibitions, especially when they have 247 items in them. And uh, it's hilarious. Graduates write quite different captions than what the rest of us write. And it's not often that anyone has an opportunity to write captions about the presidential marbles, for example, or about Thomas Jefferson Gilkins. I'm pleased to report that as part of one of Liverpool School's expansion plans, we have taken our history of the book course and split it three ways. Uh, that Mark Antonetti is now teaching the printed book to 1800. Starting next year, Dallas Schreier, an old friend of the book school, will come back to begin teaching the printed book since 1800. And I have been lucky enough to prevail upon the curator of medieval Renaissance manuscripts in the Morgan Library to begin teaching that course in rare book school starting next year and call the manuscript book. His excellence as a lecturer, said curator, is legendary. But his name is, of course, Roger Wick, and he's here this evening uh, to uh, demonstrate just that. Roger Wick, the Morgan Library. I was recently asked to speak at a conference on the iconography of heaven, and I thought there must be some mistake. I had done a little work on hell. I had published a short article and co-published a very slender book on the only known illustrated manuscript of the visions of Tondal, one of those pre-Dante stories one of those pre-Dante stories, in this case dating to the 12th century, of a worldly man who is treated to a visit to the underworld and upon returning to earth repents of his sinful ways. The manuscript, 
from which you see here the punishment of the murderers in the valley of the homicides, was illustrated for Margaret of York by Seaman Marmion, though, in the 15th century. I had also written a minor, minor, minor article on the miniature, showing here the punishment of the riotous and impatient, a cutting that is the only known fragment from Guillaume de Guilleville's Pelogrenage de l'Homme, illustrated by the master of the Ghent Privileges. And I can tell you I was startled when the editors of the Fresh Shrift, to which I had submitted my contribution, actually printed the title that I had in jest suggested and with great assurance had thought would be rejected. A little bit of hell goes a long way. <laughs> but of heaven, what did I know? If I'm known for anything, it's for my interest in books of ours. And the invitation to speak at that conference that I mentioned included, among the suggested topics, the iconography of heaven vis-a-vis -vis books of ours. What is the relationship of heaven to books of ours? What is its presence? How is it depicted? My lecture tonight is just the latest version in a conversation I've been having with myself on the topic of books of ours and how people in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance used them, saw them, and saw through them or with them. Although I've been working with them for some time, books of ours continue to amaze me with the information they can offer, not only on the obvious, such as art history or pietistic practices, but also on such themes as I will touch on tonight, perceptions of salvation, that is, heaven, uh, and also medieval conceptions of time. The Book of Hours was, in the words of Robert Delisay, the bestseller of the late Middle Ages. From the mid-13th to the mid-16th century, more books of ours were commissioned and given, bought and sold, passed down from father to son, from mother to daughter, than any other book of the period. The book of ours was more popular than the Bible, or one should say especially the Bible, since the church discouraged lay reading of this fundamental text. One of the reasons behind this great popularity was the audience for books of ours. Books of ours were read by lay men and women, used at church or at home. In panels and miniatures from the period, such as I've been showing you, if a book of ours is in is a book, if a book is in lay hands, it is most probably a book of ours. A brief survey of the normal textual and pictorial contents of a typical book of ours should enlighten us as to where heaven fits into this genre. All books of ours begin with a calendar composed mainly of a list of feast days. These feast days, for the most part, commemorate the saints' martyrdom, or in other words, their birthdays into heaven. Most Horai calendars are not illustrated, however, but when they are, they contain not heaven, but vignettes illustrating, like this one, the labors of the month and the appropriate zodiacal sign. Shown here, for example, are mowing hay in June, along with Cancer, the crab at the upper right, by the master of Morgan, 85, who worked in Paris in the early 16th century. The first text proper following the calendar is the suite of four gospel lessons, 
These are the readings from the Masses of four of the Church's major feasts, Christmas, Feast of the Annunciation, Epiphany, and the Feast of the Ascension, which is, of course, Pentecost. The traditional illustration for each of these lessons is an author portrait showing the evangelist writing his text. My example here is Matthew by the master of the Anjou Hours who worked in Rouen around 1525. I hope some of you can see close enough the illustration here because the artist loved to paint Cootie doing the most fun and outrageous things. This is sort of... Uh, dressing up in a garland, and over here are two who are literally having a pissing contest. <laughs> the Hours of the Virgin, divided into the eight canonical hours, were marked by a series of eight pictures, a set of pictures illustrating what is called the infancy cycle, that is the childhood of Christ, is the most popular theme for the hours. Here you see the Annunciation from Matins by the master of, the, of, Anna, of Anna Brittany, painted in Paris in the late 1490s. This manuscript is a recent gift to the Morgan Library and is our only example uh, of illumination by this very important uh, but rare artist. A visitation is the usual illustration for lauds. My example is by the master of the Ghent privileges working in Flanders around 1440s. A nativity, actually here, the first bath of Christ, is the usual illustration for prime. And my example is from the hours of Cincilla Gonzaga, painting, painted in uh, Milan around 1470. Um, you're going to think there's a theme here, but... I, when I show this picture, I have to show this this uh, motif. And I don't know if it fits with the Medieval art, even in serious illustrations such as the Nativity of the First Bath of Christ, can actually have humor and even uh, dirty humor and even dirty humor directed at the Christ child. And if you were close enough, you might see that projecting between the legs of the Christ child is what looks like ditches endowment for a child. But it's actually the thumb and finger of the virgin who is lifting up the Christ child and uh, she's inserted her fingers through the, through the legs. But it's a, it is a joke and it happens in another miniature in this manuscript at the circumcision where the knife being used by the high priest in the circumcision can either be interpreted as Christ's rather large penis or the knife depending on how you see it. So it's clear that the artist was having humor at the expense of his savior in this manuscript. <laughs> the uh, Annunciation to the Shepherds is the usual illustration for Terrace, and my example is by the master of the Geneva Latini working in Rouen around 1470. This adoration of the Magi for sext is from a mid-15th century Besançon manuscript, this presentation in the temple for the hour of known is by the master of the Getty, of Getty Epistles working in tour in the 1530s. And a flight into Egypt is the usual illustration for Vespers. I return to the same Besançon codex we just saw. And finally, for the hour of Compline, I show you the death of the Virgin by the master of the Harvard Hannibal 
working in the second decade of the 15th century in Paris. Although they are called the Hours of the Virgin after the person to whom one prayed for intercession, the Hours, of course, were ultimately directed, directed to God. And for these reasons, it is not so odd as it might seem initially to have a passion cycle illustrating these hours. The cycle, which I will not run through, usually begins with the agony in the garden and ends with the entombment. I show you this Christ nailed to the cross for the hour of known by the master of the Bible, Jean de C, working in Paris around 1375. And in in many manuscripts, the cycles run concurrently, something like those TV sets one sees in sports bars where you can watch two programs at the same time. At Matins, in this mid-15th century Gold Scrolls Horai, for example, the subject of the large miniature is the agony in the garden, while in the historiated initial below we see the Annunciation. After the hours of the Virgin were prayed, there followed two shorter additional hours, those of the cross and those of the Holy Spirit. The hours of the cross was usually marked by an image of the crucifixion. Our codex here was illuminated by the chief associate of Maitre Francois in Paris around 1485 or 90. The hours of the Holy Spirit were normally marked by a Pentecost. My example is the Morgan Library's famous Black Hours, painted by a follower of Willem Vreeland working in Bruges in uh, around 1470. The penitential psalms normally normally received a single picture, often that of the elderly penitent David, the traditional author of these seven psalms. My example is the uh, Bedford master working in Paris in the 1420s. Other pictorial traditions come into play with the penitential psalms. And uh, in Flemish books of ours, for instance, they often mark the psalms with an image of the Last Judgment, such as this Gold Scrolls example from the around 1440. Two prayers to the Virgin named after their incipients, the obsecro te, which means I beseech you, or the O intimorata, O incomparable one, were quite popular in books of ours. They were normally marked by by miniatures of a pieta or the Virgin and Child. Here we have an example by an artist named Bartholomew van Eyck, uh, or according to a recent article by Albert Chatelet uh, in the Gazette Bozar, he takes that attribution away and gives it to the member of the Dombe family. I've not quite worked this one out. The typical book of hours contained about a a dozen suffrages, prayers to individual saints to whom one addressed more mundane concerns, such as those over toothache or childbirth. It was common, as it was in other media, to depict the saint in the act of performing a famous miracle or in the throes of martyrdom. My example shows St. George slaying the dragon by the master of Gilbert de Metz working in Flanders in the 1420s. Finally, toward the back of every book of ours was the Office of the Dead. The illustration was often one of the events from the medieval funerary rites, such as the chanting of the office over the coffin or the burial scene. My example shows the Requiem Mass by the Coetivi Master working in France in the 1460s, and I chose this on purpose because it illustrates the function of the office to rescue from the fires of purgatory 
one's dearly departed friends or relatives. One prayed the office of the dead not for oneself, but for others. And as such, its function was unlike all the other prayers in books of ours, prayers that were recited for one's own salvation. I make a point of this because the illustrations, the pictures illustrating this office are thus going to be out of the loop of the rest of my talk, since the function was quite different. Now, such a brief survey is very shows, though, how typical, uh, shows the typical imagery uh, of books of ours. And having reached the end of this survey, one can ask, where is heaven in all of this? If the book of ours was composed of suites of prayers that people pray to see to it that they get to heaven, then representations of heaven seem strangely absent in these books. Now, having said that, I will now offer you some of the few exceptions. First of all, there is the odd image of heaven here and there. From his Granzer, there is a miniature of Jean Duc de Berry being led beyond the proverbial velvet rope into heaven's gate by St. Peter himself. The image comes from the hours of the Holy Spirit in this manuscript, and it's part of a cycle that illustrates the important role that St. Peter played in proselytizing the world under the guidance of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. The miniature of St. Peter receiving saved souls, including the dukes here, is an illustration of the special relationship between St. Peter and the third member of the Trinity. Another exceptional image is this depiction of earth below and a glorious heaven above that illustrates the litany in the famous Farnese Hours, illustrated by Giulio Clovio in the 1540s. It, too, is appropriate for its particular context, since in a litany one invokes the assistance of whole choirs of saints who dwell in heaven for help, ora pro nobis, ora te pro nobis. But the odd image of heaven did not just occur in luxurious manuscripts, such as the two that I just showed you. This image of heaven is found in a very rather pedestrian manuscript from the mid-15th century Flanders, this vision of the whole choirs of heaven faces a quadripartite miniature of the evangelist that introduces the four gospel lessons. Besides these exceptions which I've given you, there is one little place in books of ours where a bit of heaven occurs with some regularity. As I remarked earlier, it was a tradition to mark the seven penitential psalms with an image sometimes of the last judgment. Some of these last judgments, especially in Flemish or Dutch hori, include a little heaven as well as a little hell, the two destinations that will follow the Dies Irae. St. Peter receives some lucky souls into a burger-like heaven in this miniature by Willem Vreeland. This Dutch example from the end of the 15th century exhibits uh, similar iconography. Really, however, if you're looking for traditional representations of what we think of as heaven, you're not going to find all that much in books of ours. And it was this realization that struck me and startled me and began to make me think and to think very hard on this apparent icon irony. This irony 
is that in a book that was all about getting to heaven, there are next to no pictures of the desired place in books of ours. I was struck, too, by the irony that if heaven seems scarce pictorially, it is omnipresent textually. The heart of any book of ours is the series of prayers called the Little Office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, in short, the Hours of the Virgin. There are eight separate hours, each composed mostly of psalms, plus varying combinations of hymns and prayers and readings, to which innumerable short ejaculations, antiphons, versicles, responses, are generously sprinkled. Ideally, these eight hours were prayed throughout the course of the day, Matins and Lauds said together, upon rising, prime, the first hour around 6 a.m., terrace, the third hour around 9 a.m., and so forth, until Vespers and Compline, which were prayed upon retiring. Developed in the late 8th or early 9th century, the hours of the Virgin began to be added to the divine office, the daily round of prayers that medieval church required of its ordained priests, monks, and nuns. By the mid-11th century, they were an established practice and thus were to be found in antiphonaries and breviaries. By the late 12th century, the hours are also found in Psalters, the prayer books containing the Psalms used in this era of emerging literacy by both the ordained and the laity, Psalters. By the mid-13th century, these Psalter, these hybrid Psalter hours lost their Psalter sections and retaining their calendars and Offices of the Dead became the core of the prayer book known as the Book of Hours. As already mentioned, the Hours of the Virgin consist mostly of psalms. The 150 psalms describe in the Bible the relationship between God and man. Jehovah, the eternal, immutable, and omnipotent, is the creator of the universe, which he upholds and governs by his divine providence. Himself, all holy, God demands from his creatures holiness and penitence. God's vengeance on the wicked is also a recurring theme in the Psalms. The Israeli nation's hope for the future is centered upon a scion of the Davidic line described as the great priest-king and God's son who will cast down his enemies and unite the whole world in his worship. Now, these Old Testament psalms did not, of course, make any mention of Jesus Christ. It was the Christians who saw Christ as the priest king and God's son as mentioned by the psalmist. This should not surprise us, for we know how medieval theologians, quarrying not only the Old Testament but also pagan sources such as Virgil's Aeneid, enjoyed ferreting out people or events that were thought to prefigure New Testament events or concepts. Thus, to a Christian, the presence of Christ is always implied in the Psalms. But to read the Psalms and conjure up the Virgin Mary is a little bit of a greater stretch. But it is part of the charm of books of ours, the hours of the Virgin, that Mary is tied into this picture. The first nocturne, Matins, uses Psalm 8, whose glory, whose theme is the glory of God is shown in nature, and man. O Lord, our Lord, how admirable is thy name in the whole earth, for thy magnificence is elevated upon the heavens. Out of the mouths of infants and of sucklings thou hast perfected praise. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little less 
than the angels. Now, part of the beauty of the Hours of the Virgin is how the themes celebrated in the Psalms are applied to the Mother of God. This is done through antiphons that begin and end as a kind of frame each psalm. Blessed art thou is said before the psalm, and like a musical motive whose opening notes are enough to recall its entirety, the opening antiphon was only a short phrase. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, is the closing antiphon, set at the completion of the psalm. Its source is obviously the Hail Mary. Thus the theme of the psalm, the glory of God made manifest in nature and man, is expanded through the antiphons, the theme of which is the miracle of the incarnation. Man is not only worthy of salvation, but this salvation is also brought about through the Virgin Mary, a member of the human race. The nocturne continues with Psalm 18, whose theme is the splendor of the physical and moral orders of the universe. The short form of the antiphon recited at the beginning of the psalm is even as choice myrrh. This is expanded to its complete form at the end. Even as choice myrrh, thou hast yielded an odor of sweetness, O holy mother of God. The phrase, based on Ecclesiasticus 24.20, compares divine wisdom to the purest myrrh and, by extension, to the Virgin Mary. Psalm 23, the last, the third and last psalm of this nocturne, celebrates the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the majesty of the Lord, and his glorious entrance into his shrine. Before the couch, the opening antiphon is expanded to, before the couch of this virgin, sing to us often sweet songs with solemnity. It's recited at the end. The antiphon exhorts us to praise, to sing praises before the virgin who, receiving Christ at the incarnation, is the new Ark of the Covenant. After the three psalms, there followed the nocturne's three lessons, whose teachings reiterate themes that I've already raised. The readings, all taken from Ecclesiasticus, speak of eternal wisdom and its dwelling place on earth. Mystically interpreted, eternal wisdom is taken to be the incarnate Christ. The Hours of the Virgin also supplies these Old Testament texts to the Virgin. Matin ends with the Te Deum, the canticle traditionally attributed to Saints Ambrose and Augustine. All the earth does praise thee, the Father everlasting. To thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. The powers therein as the prayer continues to tell us, include cherubim and seraphim, the glorious choir of apostles, the admirable company of the prophets, the whole white-robed army of martyrs, and the whole church throughout the world. We pray thee, therefore, help thy servants, that's us, make them to be numbered with thy saints in glory everlasting. Lift them, meaning us, up forever. Thus, as you can hear from even these few excerpts, heaven is very much on the mind of the person praying the hours of the Virgin. Attaining heaven, that is, securing salvation, is the very goal of the prayers. And the prayers evoke an image that becomes the picture in the mind's eye while praying. 
In many books of ours, the infancy cycle illustrating the hours of the Virgin end often end with an image of the coronation of the Virgin. It is a leap, purposeful, a jump from the earlier part of her life when she was mother to the end of her life, her assumption into paradise and coronation there by her son as queen of heaven. This miniature is of the coronation is by the Lamborg brothers from the Duc de Berry's Très Richesur. It takes place in the sky, and it is peopled with angels, apostles, saints, and martyrs, and as such, depicts a heaven is conjured up in the prayers such as the Te Deum, excerpts that I read earlier. With Christ, the Virgin, saints, angels, all floating on puffy white gold clouds, the deep blue sky, we see an image that any of us would say is a picture of heaven. The coronation often appears at Compline, and I cheated a little bit when I showed you for Compline the death of the Virgin. It's actually more often the coronation. Um, But the rendering of the coronation usually doesn't look as glorious or as immediately celestial as the Virgin by the Lamborg brothers, which was my previous slide. But it means heaven nonetheless. I show you this example by the Busico master. But the coronation does take place in heaven, even if it doesn't look very divine to our eyes, such as in this rather pedestrian Flemish example. The frequency of the coronation at the end of the hours has made me stop and think about the cycle which it caps and to which it belongs as a whole. To put it another way, when the original owners of books of hours used them and viewed the the pictures illustrating the early life of Christ, Annunciation, the visitation, nativity, etc. What was their notion of time in relation to these scenes? Now, on the first and obvious level, these pictures would have been seen as images of past historic events, events that took place at very specific places and times. But there was another level of time connected with these events. This second level of time is most easily graspable when we think of the crucifixion. Now, medieval people knew, I mean, they believed, they, they believed it so, they knew it, knew that the crucifixion happened on the Friday following the Passover cedar in the year 33 AD. But they also knew that the crucifixion took place every day during the celebration of Mass. In other words, as part of the unfolding of God's salvation of mankind, the crucifixion took place once, and it takes place again and again. In other words, it takes place all the time. Christ assumed flesh for one reason, to offer fallen man redemption. All of the events relating to his life, beginning from the moment of his incarnation at the Annunciation, are thus part of the process of redemption leading up to his death. According to medieval theologians, when Christ shed blood for the first time of his life at his circumcision, his passion had already begun in his childhood. As individual scenes within the play of redemption, all of the events of Christ's life are both of a time and timeless. Timeless, they are eternal. So medieval users of books of ours thus saw the events of Christ's life and not only the crucifixion as continually taking place within an eternal context. 
and that eternal context where Christ dwells with his father and his mother, the angels and the company of saints, is and can only be heaven. In this way, the illustrations of the hours of the Virgin depicting the life of Christ, either the early life of the infancy cycle or the later life, the passion, are thus also images of heaven. About ten years ago, I saw a production of Wagner's Ring des Nibelungen in Washington, D.C., production by Peter Sikora that had been imported from the Deutsche Oper of Berlin, where a few years later I was actually able also to see it again. The opera, all four parts, were set inside the Washington subway system. World War III, it was darkly hinted, had taken place on the surface, and all life, such as not had been obliterated, had moved below ground for survival. Four parts of Wagner's Ring were continually performed by the survivors for their own amusement. And depending on how you feel about Wagner's music, that is either your definition of hell or heaven. <laughs> it is in something like this manner that, as I see it, medieval people saw the events of Christ's life continually and continuously reenacted in the eternity of heaven. We must remember, too, that this concept of perpetual reenactment was not foreign to the medieval mind. In fact, the church's liturgical year is nothing but a cyclical repeating reenactment of the birth of Christ, as celebrated in Advent and Christmas tide, the penance, passion, and death of the Savior, as commemorated in Lent, followed by the Feast of the Resurrection, the period of proselytization, as related to the feasts after Pentecost. And at the end of November, of course, medieval men and women found themselves beginning the cycle all over again with another advent. The church thus celebrates eternal truths. If we keep in mind the actual prayers that are connected with the pictures in books of ours, as we have just seen with the Hours of the Virgin, we can begin to see these images in a slightly different, slightly expanded light. Take, for example, the two popular prayers to the Virgin, the Absecrote and the O in Timorata. Both prayers dwell on the role of the Virgin at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion, her steadfast loyalty to her son. For this reason, some miniatures marking these prayers might illustrate the Pieta, or the Lamentation, such as in this early 16th century, Hours of Jean Carondelet by the Flemish master of Sir George Talbot. But other miniatures emphasize another important aspect of these prayers, namely that the Virgin, that the Virgin is addressed in the eternity of heaven. Thus, in this miniature from an Eastern French Horai, the Virgin is enthroned, being crowned by cherubim and attended to by angels. In other words, she's in heaven. In this obsecrote image, traditionally given back to our friend Bartholomew van Eyck, the Virgin stands before a celestial cloth of honor held by angels before a gold background, significant, of course, for heaven. Now, these kinds of celestial Madonnas can be multiplied, and their ubiquity signals their wide currency in these manuscripts. This example is from a late 15th century hours from Langres, where the image of the Virgin and Child is presented as the vision of the Araceli, as witnessed by Emperor Augustus 
and the Tiburtine symbol, Sybil in the Bard of Hajj. But as images of books of hours reveal, it is not just emperors who are privileged to receive such visions, for the owners of these manuscripts, as they recited the prayers, had in their mind's eye such mental pictures. This helps us realize that even when these images become a bit prosaic, such as this one by Maitre Francois, the patron is still treated to a celestial vision, as the canopy and the trio of angel, musical angels attest. Maitre Francois's miniature here, in turn, helps us know that even when the Virgin inhabits a 15th century middle-class living room, such as in this miniature, she is still in heaven in the eyes of the patron. These Images are much like those that appear in large panel and canvas painting from this period, both in the north of Europe and the south. And I show you the beautiful painting by Gerard David in which the donor, Richard de Visch, witnesses the mystic marriage of St. Catherine in the Virgin's Ortis Conclusus, her enclosed garden. Richard sees the vision, but the holy figures do not return his gaze, an indication that the scene is imagined. To return to Books of Hours, it is not, however, just with the obsecrote and the Owen Timorata, where images of a heavenly virgin appear. Similar images, for example, are sometimes used to illustrate the joys of the virgin, the duels d'âme, the French Paris celebrating the five, seven, or fifteen joys of the virgin. My example is by a follower of the Busico master. This is a virgin by the master of the Harvard Hannibal. These are but two of hundreds of these kinds of miniatures that I could show you. The Hannibal master here has captured something, I think, of that motif of the eye of the donor not quite meeting the gaze of the uh, holy people to whom she's praying. She seems to stare sort of straight ahead, slightly to, slightly below the, uh, the Christ child. And there are other places within the books of ours that images of kneeling, praying patrons signal what is going on in their mind's eye. This female patron prays before St. Anthony in a miniature that illustrates a suffrage. Now, St. Anthony looks firmly planted on earth, but I would contend that this is not where our patron thinks of when she thinks of him. St. Anthony dwells, as does our St. Catherine here, painted by Simon Benning, in the eternity of heaven. The destruction of the torture wheels in the background shows us that these are past events in Catherine's life. Catherine, the sword that had been used to decapitate her in her hand, calmly reads in the heavenly state of her reward, the serenity of paradise. And we know it's heaven because, of course, she has her head back on. In addition to the obsecrote, the O Intimorata, and such prayers as the joys of the Virgin and the suffrages, the examples I've given you, visionary iconography also sometimes appears at the very heart of the Book of Hours, and that is at the Hours of the Virgin themselves. In this early 15th century miniature by the Edgerton Master with fantastic borders that sure don't show up very well by the Master of <coughs> Walters 219, the patron, while beginning his hours, sees a vision of the Virgin, again in heaven, in a hortus conclusus. 
a garden of flowers surrounds the virgin and child, and a border of flowers encircles the text that provides this vision. In the hours of William Porter, the patron kneels on folio 84 verso, looking toward the facing miniature on folio 85 that opens the hours of the Virgin. The miniature from the early 1420s by the master of Sir John Fastolf <clears throat> contains many of those features to which we are now more than a little bit familiar. The royal throne, golden light, enclosed garden, musical angels. In the hours of Anne of France, painted by Jean Colombe in the 1470s, Princess Anne begins her hours by imagining herself present at the very moment of the incarnation. In this case, the canopy, deep blue decorated with gold fleur-de-lis, signifies her terrestrial space, while the Annunciation takes place in a timeless ecclesiastical environment. Finally, I can point out that this visionary iconography, this conception that the patron sees in his or her mind's eye, an image of heaven, especially as inhabited by the Virgin, also appears in places that make it clear that the entire Book of Hours is meant as a vision of heaven. In the Dubois Hours from 14th century England, Hawisa Dubois, her husband, daughter kneel before a gigantic image of the Virgin. This miniature is one of four that form a frontispiece series that occurs at the front of the book, even before the calendar. It thus illustrates the means and the end, which are the same, the Virgin, our intercessor, in heaven, where we pray to be. At the front of the book, it lends a keynote theme to the entire manuscript. <clears throat> From frontispiece, we move to pictorial colophon. At the end of his early 16th century book of hours, illustrated by the master of Petrarch's triumphs, Claude Molay inserted a portrait of himself kneeling at prayer with his patron saint, Claude, standing protectively behind him. The two Claudes face this miniature of the enthroned virgin. The attendant angels and gold background define the celestial space. The Book of Hours as means toward vision is underscored in this picture, for the Virgin holds her book upside down. In other words, she proffers the book so that Mr. Molay can read it. She is telling Claude that the words to be found in his Book of Hours are the sweetest to her ears. Now, I started this lecture by remarking how ubiquitous the Book of Hours was for a 300-year period that is, from the mid-13th to the mid-16th century. Now, not every book of ours has what I might call it a visionary miniature in it, but their frequent enough occurrence reflects to me a mindset that covers the entire genre. In other words, with or without the visionary picture, to men and women of the late Middle Ages and Renaissance, each book of ours offered to its owner a picture of heaven in their hands. Thank you. Thank you.